Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you've not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. And now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, God, Moses had given land in Bashan, that's to the north of the, the promised land. And the other half of the tribe of Joshua, the half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with a great quantity of clothing, and divide with your brothers the plunder from your enemies. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Geliloth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the rest of the Israelites, not said but implied, heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Geliloth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And with him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, I'd like to make that point, isn't he? The whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Then the bunch of the guys on the west replied to the head of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, the God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel know. If this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, don't spare us this day. If we built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, 
or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No! We did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. And you, the Reubenites and the Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. Your descendants might have caused ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar. But not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it's to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And if we said, if they ever say this to us and to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and to turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings. Other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before the tabernacle. And when Phineas the priest and the leaders heard what the others had to say, they were pleased. And he said to Reuben, Gad and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not acted unfaithfully towards the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. And then verse 33, they were glad to hear the report and praise God. They talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and Gadites gave this altar the name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. A story in which we're going to look this morning at four things, rest, resentment, restoration, revelation, all of which are about being a united people. And in terms of what God has been saying to us this morning, the thing that's kind of on my heart most of all is uh, something of a fresh call, a fresh challenge to us to understand about the importance of giving ourselves together to the purposes that God has for us. Let's look first at those, those first few verses of the chapter. There's an encouragement here that there's rest when the job's done. That's what the, uh, Joshua assured the, uh, these three tribes on the, that were due to go to the east of the Jordan. The, the job was done and they could go and enjoy their rest. Uh, picture Israel, you know, the Jordan runs back from the middle and there was some land to the east of the Jordan that the... Uh, Certain tribes had said, we want to live here. It's, it's great for sort of keeping loads of herds of cattle. And that's what we believe God's got for us. Can we have this land? And they've been granted that by Moses back in Exodus. And now having fought these battles on the, uh, the west side of the Jordan and seen the land captured, they were now being released to go back to what God had for them. But it had been a long campaign. That is not abundantly clear just from reading through the story because the battles are covered in sort of a relatively few chapters and we can get the impression that they're kind of bang, 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 all sorted. To put it in context, the book of Joshua probably covers some 30 to 40 years, most scholars believe. And it's largely concerned with these battles being fought. So how much of that time was battle time is not totally clear to us. But it certainly wasn't a few months. These guys had essentially been away from their homeland for a significant number of years, seeing that the job got done. 
Uh, and there's something that we need to just make sure we understand because there's something that we kind of have in our heads as kind of, I think, as people of God sometimes. Because God is with us and God is for us. We kind of expect sometimes everything just to be zapped, done, sorted. But actually the reality is that it is battle. Uh, and it's battle that is ongoing. I mentioned last week there are many battles to be fought. Uh, there are many battles that we face ahead in seeing what God has called us to, so this kind of cluster initiatives actually get established. Uh, and we really have got to kind of get in our heads that we're prepared for that. Um, not that one wants to walk around with a sense of, oh, it's all battle, it's all hard work, it's all dreadful. That, that's not kind of the, the spirit, the mindset we need to be walking under, which sometimes we can mistakenly think. If God is for us, then as we've heard prophesied again this morning, the victory is sure, but it doesn't do away with the battles. They've still got to be fought. And, you know, Paul understood that in the New Testament. Through many hardships we enter the kingdom, he said to, in Acts 14. Mike B's experienced that this week. There he goes into India to go and do something in terms of teaching in a camp, and the Indian authorities said, you're a bit dodgy, we don't want you here, go home. Which was a bit of a shock, you know, Mike now has a star that says I'm the first um, person from OCC who's been deported from a country. And there's a whole battle Mike now faces in terms of if he's going to get back into India again to continue what God has given him to work in that country. All of us individually know times when we face battles. Let's not pretend that they don't exist. Let's not get some kind of false understanding about the reality of our life with God. There are battles to be fought. But the truth is, the victory is assured. And that's why this coming week to me is is important. It's a week to battle together in prayer. Because we need to break through in the unbelief that we all carried of actually, can God really do it? He's spoken, but is he really going to produce the goods? There's our own unbelief we have to battle with. There are challenges we face in battling through in the situations we're in. Um, I'm going to list them all off now, but I think about the guys I'm living, where I'm living in the west side of town. There's a whole sense of God releasing something to us through a community centre, which right now is just closed up against us. And we've got to see breakthrough to get to see that place opened up and used as a vehicle for bringing uh, good news to people in that area. And, and so the story could be repeated amongst our other clusters. God's given us stuff to do, but we face battle in breaking through. And we're not going to do that just by lots of energy and shouting louder. We're going to do it by calling on the Lord, who is the one who leads the people into battle. And we know that. Yeah, right, Christian answer. Let's do it, folks. Let's do it this week. Let's call on the Lord on our own, together in twos and threes. Let's be here Thursday night and call him together. And let's make sure that we line up with the way he wants things done seeing him at the head, seeing us giving us that breakthrough. The other thing that is, for me, the challenging lesson of these first few verses in Joshua 22 is that these guys who got this inheritance on the east of the Jordan had stuck it out for all that time to complete the task together. At no point is there any any sense of the story of Joshua. They said, well, guys... Thanks a bunch. Yeah, we did a battle. It was fine. You've won. Now you don't need us anymore. We're off to look after our own sheep and goats and cows and whatever. They stuck it out until God had given them rest in the land. 
And there's something I believe God is challenging us all to, to make sure we don't do, which is get into a, well, we're doing okay on our patch. Our cluster's going really well. Glory to God. Sorry, guys, you should come and join us. And I want to suggest, because I've been there, done that, and bought the T-shirt, that we can all slip into that sense of self-satisfaction, maybe pride, maybe just complacency, where we are content with what God's doing with our nice little thing, and we miss out on the big picture that God is calling us to. God has not called any one of you to be a nice, wonderful, effective Christian in the 20 square metres in which you live in your part of town. He's called you, I believe, to be part of a group of people together who together God's given a vision to see a city infected and transformed by the kingdom of God. And that transformation cannot happen by each of us just being content on doing our own little thing in our own 20 square metres. It's going to happen as together we understand we are a people together, united together to complete a task God's given us to do. Now, that does not mean that we all have to be doing everything. That's unrealistic. You know, there are things that God has individually called us to, there are responsibilities that we all have. But there is a mindset that says, well, I'm doing my own thing and I'm doing what God's called me to do. It's all my, my, my. And there's a mindset that says, this is what God has called us to do. This is what we are doing. This is where we are going. Are you a we person this morning or an I person? Do you think me or do you think we? Do you think I'm doing my own thing and what God's called me to do or do you think corporately about what God has called us to do? These guys on the east stuck it out till the job was finished. I believe the challenge to all of us this morning is that we have a mindset that says we're in this together till the job is done. Until we see across the city that we believe God's laid on our heart to be involved in all of this world are tribes at rest. That there's, we get to a point, as it were, where each of our clusters is sufficiently established and able to be released into the inheritance God's given them that we can sort of move on to the next phase. Until then, it's all of us needing to work together all the time to see that released, which is why I think Thursday nights, for example, important. That, to me, is a practical place where we can demonstrate together we're in this together to see God do something together. And we can pray for one another's clusters and we can share the concern uh, of those clusters and stand together that none of us feel like we're on our own. God deliver us from a parochial, narrow-minded, small-centred mindset. God release us into a bigger, greater, more extensive view of his kingdom and what he wants to do in this city. And that does mean a willingness to sacrifice. As I said, no point of the Eastern tribes plead, stuff it guys, we're after our own sheep, we've had enough. They were willing to stick it out to the end. And that will mean for us at times extra hard work, extra commitment, extra involvement. But let's be people who are willing to sacrifice to see all that God's done. Which brings us to that first challenge. We need to be together to complete the task. My challenge to you this morning is, have you settled that issue? How committed are you to that personally? That you understand it's going to be all of us together to see what God's called us to do. Are we ready to line up, as God has encouraged us prophetically this morning, 
behind the king, behind Jesus and what he's doing. Recognising we can't do it on our own, that we need to be linked together. That's why the prophetic this morning, to me, is so significant. And that probably is the kind of, the, for me, the, the greatest thing I think comes out of this past this morning. We're going to cover the rest of the story before we finish, because there's more to learn. But that, more than anything, is the thing that I believe is the challenge to all of us this morning. Do we have a we mindset or an I mindset? Are we in this thing together to see it through? Anyway, Joshua recognises, let's go out to the chapter, verse 5, that rest has been promised. And there's a whole kind of thing we've got for a tangent this morning and talk about the rest of God. Because this story in, he- in Joshua 22 is picked up again by the writer of, to the Hebrews in Hebrews 4. But that's another sermon for another day because I don't feel that primarily is what God has for us to be focused on this morning. But there is rest for us all to enjoy. Okay? Uh, let's be encouraged by that. So the tribes go off and cross the Jordan and then the trouble starts. Verse 10. It wasn't long before things started to go wrong. They crossed the Jordan. They talked. And they obviously chose. That in fact, probably before they crossed the Jordan. Or at some point they went back across the Jordan again. They built an imposing altar. The implication being the altar is built on the west side of the Jordan. Where the rest of the tribes were. So they could look across the Jordan at this imposing altar. Trouble was that triggered a whole train of thought in the majority of the tribes who lived on the west side of the Jordan. And they looked at this thing and said, what are these guys doing? Something dreadful is happening here. And they jumped to conclusions very quickly and in no time at all they picked up swords and were all hell-bent on destroying the very people who for many, many years had worked with them to see the land taken. How quickly unity gets attacked. How quickly unity gets threatened. And potentially it was going to have disastrous consequences. The context there was that the guys on the West were fearful of history repeating itself. The whole story of Peor is where certain of the Israelites back in the wilderness went off after foreign gods and worshipped illegally and made sacrifices, as it were, illegally. And the judgment of God came upon them and a whole stack of people were killed because that's how God dealt with stuff then. And the guys in the West feared that God was about to do the same thing again and they didn't want that to happen. But in part, they're leaping to the false conclusions and, and being full of panic, was also based on a misunderstanding. Because they looked at this altar, assumed that the guys on the eastern side were going to be performing sacrifices on it, and only remembered half of what God had said to them back in Deuteronomy. Uh, Let me just turn to that for you to put it in context. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 12 says... If you hear about one of the towns the Lord your God has given you to live in, if you hear that in one of those towns, wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire and probe and investigate it thoroughly. 
And if it's true and it's been proved that this detestable thing has happened among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. God's way of dealing with the people in that situation involved these kind of dramatic acts of judgment. And there's a whole other thing to unpack there and keep passing that to Dave Perry on December the 5th and Sunday evening if you want to grapple with that side of, of, of the God who dealt with things in that sort of a way. But they missed verse 14 there, go and inquire thoroughly. The point in the story in verse 12, they'd all set, as it were, to charge off into battle, swords at their side to kill a few people because they'd forgotten to go and ask first. Fortunately, um, somebody somewhere in that community thought, hang on a minute, guys, we better just check our facts first. And so Phineas heads off to do that. But let's just pause the button for the moment and do a bit of kind of self-reflection and self-challenge. How, no, no hands, show of hands needed this morning, but how often have you looked at some other Christians around you and done a wonderful verbal sword job of what do they think they're doing, chop? Who do they think they are, chop? That's dreadful, chop before you bother to ask actually what was really going on. And I would, again, been there, done the T-shirt, not bear too much of my mistakes in public, and I live with somebody who does it even more than I do. Um, <laughs> you said I could say that. Um, uh, yeah, I think we do that a lot more than we'd like to own up to. You read the story and you think, what a stupid bunch of idiots. They've been together for years, being united together, supporting one another. How could they so stupidly make that mistake? But actually, I think we do the same thing far too quickly ourselves. And we'd be stupid to read, as it were, over that part of the story and not just kind of press the, uh-uh, do I need to take stock here about my own quickness to jump to conclusions and to be quick to judge, quick to condemn? The unity that we have together, as I've said, can be so easily threatened. We used to have a phrase, I haven't heard so much these days, about being responders, not reactors. In that actually response requires a certain amount of I've stopped, thought, and then done something, rather than I've just straight reacted. You could argue the Israelites who were guilty of reacting, they hadn't done much responding. And if that helps, file that away and make that part of who you are and ask God to help you be a responder, not a reactor. But we don't need to allow fear and insecurity to make us react. We don't need to allow any sort of sense of self-righteousness to make us react to wrong conclusions quickly without checking the facts. Anyway, as BT once reminded us, it's good to talk. And the, fortunately, they do that. And the guys get together, you've read, we've read the story together. The um, majority of tribes on these present their case about what they think is going on. And they lay out the challenge that, look guys, you've built this huge great altar. Just like a Canaanite worship centre implied. It was incredibly visible, just like Canaanite altars were on the high places. It was an altar surely for sacrifice, as altars were used for. And we're only supposed to sacrifice at the one altar God's given us. You know... You're inviting God to bring judgment upon us. What on earth are you doing? Fortunately, even in that, they said, it's okay, you can still come across and sacrifice at the altar God's given us. We're not holding you out from that. There there wasn't a redemptive 
act, even in their conversation. To which the eastern tribe said, but guys, you've got it all wrong. You missed the point. This altar was never intended for sacrifice. It was intended as a reminder, a witness. And I think it's healthy to note, in terms of how I read, certainly, the story of their response. They weren't defensive in their response. They weren't self-justifying. There's no hint that they acted inappropriately. But they knew they were accountable to God in where they stood. They were robust in their defence. They called on God in three different ways. The mighty one, God, the Lord. From the mighty one, God, the Lord. That sense of strength in terms of acknowledging who God was and how much they were accountable to him. They recognised their own vulnerability. But they also understood the power of the visual reminder. There was a visual reminder here they built to make sure they didn't lose sight of what God had for them. Maybe there was a hint of mistrust, two of the others, what they feared. They'd done their own kind of risk assessment and risk management and come to the conclusion the best way forward was to build this visual reminder. But the very fact that they sat down and talked together meant that the situation was resolved. Our unity can be easily threatened but it can also be easily restored. just want to kind of push that home a bit more for us this morning in just saying, if we are people who we know are very quick to react, quick to condemn, do we really need to get before God and say, God, help, change me? Do we need a bit of personal facing up to truth and repenting before the Lord and calling on him to help us? And if we know that we've been the victims, as it were, of that ourselves, and something of the unity we thought we had with others has actually been messed up by others, and we feel hurt and damaged by that, are we going to allow that to leave us distant and cut off and separated from people from here on in? When God never intended us to be alone, and Suzanne reminded of that this morning, are we going to allow God to come and bring some healing and some restoration to us, to leave the past behind, to be God redeeming in our situation, exercising the forgiveness that we may need to be helped towards in order that we can move on and be united again to brothers and sisters and be effective in God's kingdom together. Let's not let past damage, past hurt, as it were, cut us off from the benefit and the blessing of unity God wants us to enjoy. And so finally, their restoration has recome. And Phineas in verse 31 says something I think is quite powerful. The high priest, the priest for the people, that's who Phineas was, says to them all, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you've not acted unfaithfully towards the Lord in this matter. I just found that hugely encouraging because there are times that I go through when I think, Is God really with me? Is anything going on? Why do my prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling? I can't make much sense of all that's happening around me with kind of this calamity or that thing going wrong or whatever. Is God really with me? And Phineas's encouragement is, but you've not acted unfaithfully. And I think, well, okay, Lord, maybe you are still with me because actually I haven't completely thrown the towel and got up and done something completely stupid that I might later regret. And I've had some huge encouragement for us all this morning 
that if you go through times when you wonder, is God really with us? If you still find yourself wanting to call on God, wanting to be with the people of God, something is still working in this thing between you and God. You're not acting unfaithfully. God is still with you. I think there's some encouragement there for all of us. And that revelation that God is with them leads to three outcomes. It releases praise and worship in recognition that God is with them. It causes them to establish the witness between them that God is indeed the Lord. And also, for me most importantly this morning, it restores the unity between them. They may have had a physical boundary separating them, but they knew they were one people together, intent on the same purpose. There was a spiritual unity that they found together because they recognised that God is the Lord. And that, to me, sums up where we are this morning. That there is a unity that God wants us to enjoy together. It's a unity that we need to commit to to complete a task. It's a unity that we need to recognise is easily threatened, but is, by the grace of God, also easily restored. But most of all, it's a unity that comes about because we all share a relationship in God with the God that is with us. Everything else we're about doing and being and want to be together as a people is not because you're with a bunch of people you happen to like who wear the right colour T-shirt or whatever. It's because we are the same relationship with the God that unites us and draws us together. And if you don't know that for yourself this morning, you've been part of us, you've been coming along, something about God you're pursuing, you need to know a relationship with God for yourself this morning that is real life changing and amazing. And you need to come and speak to one of us afterwards that we can help you find God for yourself this morning in that complete and whole way. But let's all of us recognise this morning that what we have, we have because of who God is. Let's make sure we've got that clear first of all. And let's be ready to commit ourselves to the unity that God's calling us to. I was kind of thinking, okay, that's great. But where do we go from here? And I was thinking that where God kind of brought me last week in Joshua 9 was challenge about how we saw commitment, it was challenge about how we saw our relationship with God, and it was challenge about how we saw our relationships with one another. A commitment to covenant, to bring to be committed together to something, about not letting anything get in the way of our relationship with God and removing reluctance, and about not letting anything get in the way of our relationships with each other by becoming prey to deception and I guess in, in talking about unity this morning and challenging us all afresh I believe there's a fresh call on all of us this morning to embrace this call to unity God's giving us I just want to leave you with three things I think we all need to be to that end we need to be transparent in our relationship with God we're not keeping anything back from him we're not in any way reluctant to let God in We recognise that he is God and he's given us unity together. We're committed together to seeing the job that God's called us to be completed. We're going to work together until the job's done. 
And we're determined not to let anything hinder us in that, whether it's in guarding our unity or defeating deception. You may want to just run that by yourself this morning and just settle for yourself how willing you are to embrace those three things and what God's challenging you to this morning. But there is a corporate thing that I believe God is after as well for us. It's a corporate thing about saying, yes, we are in this together. There's something of a corporate response. Practically, I'm suggesting you can make that just by being with us this Thursday evening as we meet together and pray together. If you're new to the church and you've heard a bit about this cluster stuff and it's all a bit of a funny language, come along on Thursday night to find out what those clusters are. If you want to be part of what God's doing amongst us, you need to be involved in one of these clusters. We've actually put a sheet out the back uh, for you to put your own name and, and contact details down on so that we can get in touch with you and make sure that connection is made if you want to join in with one of our clusters um, and, as it were, actively play your part in seeing the, the kingdom come to this city of taking the ground that God's given us to take together. Um, but there's something of settling issues in our own hearts. I believe as we come to the end of this Joshua story, God has for all of us. That we're, we want to be people who are committing ourselves to not let anything in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And we're going to be committed together to seeing that job done.